All right, what's up, everyone? This is season four, episode number two. Glad to have you back with me. It's going to be good today. Well, you know, actually, it already is good today because guess what? Today is my and my wife's anniversary. That's right, 31 years. We are well into our fourth decade together, which <laughs> is amazing. It's amazing, especially, especially for her. She's had to live with me this long. So, but look, don't feel bad. I know I'm hanging out with you right now, but look, she's working, so we can't, you know, we can't be together this moment. We'll get together tonight. We'll have a good time. Uh, but meanwhile, um, we're going to spend some time, you and I, talking. Uh, as you already know, if you listen to the opening podcast, excuse me, the opening episode of this season, um, we're talking right now about story and narrative and the beauty of art and tension and resolution and the ups and downs. And I think, you know, part of the point here is um, I think it's really easy for us to forget sometimes that our own lives potentially are really beautiful. We we tend to see the problems as these static things. You know, it's funny, we'll read a book or listen to a song or watch a movie or look at a painting or a photograph and we'll be able to see the beauty in it because we'll catch something in that piece of art that, you know, has some kind of problem that needs to be overcome or represents some kind of symbolic thing uh, going on in someone's life that needs to be uh, resolved maybe or figured out how to live with. And we can see that in art, but sometimes we forget that our life is actually art. And that reminds me, What's Ephesians 2 say? Uh, now, some of you I know aren't um, believers, and so you couldn't care less about this, but that's cool. I'm glad you're with us anyhow. But Ephesians 2 says something like, for we are all God's handiwork. It just depends on the translation. I think the Greek word is poema, uh, which we get the English word um, poem. So some translations and paraphrases you'll see were all God's handiwork or masterpiece our artwork, and sometimes you will actually see poem. But the point is, I think, that God is something of an artist, and he's, and he's entering into life with us in real time because this is not a blueprint universe. This is not a predetermined thing. Um, he's the artist, and that doesn't mean that you're not an artist either. You guys actually, you guys, <laughs> you and him, or you and her, and all of us, me and her, me and him, uh, we are co-artists together, creating something. And that helps me to think of it in those terms because it just reminds me that even though I may be going through, through something difficult, traumatic even right now, that really what's happening is I'm just in the middle of a really good story and it hasn't all been worked out yet, but that I think this spirit of energy that we might name as love or God is even more interested than I am in trying to weave creativity and beauty and art in the middle of all of it. So I don't know. That really helps me, and that kind of motivates uh, a lot of what I'm thinking when I begin to talk about story. You know, all of us are trying to figure out the best path in life. We're trying to get to truth. And I've decided that truth kind of lives in the marriage of fact and story, uh, if you get off on one or the other, uh, it may send you down the wrong path. And sometimes it feels like maybe those things aren't symbiotic, but they really are. They're kind of like two sides of the same coin. 
It's just that they're asking different questions. Um, I remember hearing John Pokinghorn a few years ago talk. I don't know if you know him, but he's a uh, he was a world-renowned physicist who then at one point left the academy to become a priest and then later came back to the academy at uh, Cambridge or Oxford or somewhere over there in Great Britain. Pokinghorn said something like, he was talking, I guess at the time, about religion and science, and he said they asked two different questions. Science asks the question of how, and religion asks the question of why. And I think the same could be said of truth and story. One is going after how and tends to be more cut and dry fact. The other tends to go after why and the motives and tends to be about the emotions and the movement and the the dynamic changes of the thing. And one isn't necessarily right over against the other. I think the point is, is that truth somehow emerges in the marriage of both of them. However, in the religious world, for the most part, I feel like um, in Western Americanized Christianity, we've turned from story quite a bit. We tend to think, you know, the Bible has it all written out in black and white, or the creeds have it all written out in black and white, and faith uh, becomes this thing that we just understand, and we connect the mental dots, and then, you know, everything is going to go well for us. And it's really not like that at all, uh, because words change, contexts change. God's given us a brain, or we've evolved to have a brain, or God is evolution, and so evolution has given us a brain, however you want to look at it. And when you use your brain, you realize, man, trying to find the truth uh, takes you down a lot of different paths, and there's a lot of different things that you have to try to discern and not just understand, but also be willing to stand under. So it's understand, but also at the same time, and maybe even more often, it's to stand under because that's what happens with life. You know, you think you have it figured out and then a bunch of stuff shifts underneath your feet and you have to kind of ride it and roll with it and use your discernment to figure out what the next step is. So that's kind of what we're talking about throughout this season and um, a little bit of what I'm trying to get at today. I want to read the shortest of a collection of short stories that I'm calling The Hope and Melvin of Humanity and Other Surprising Short Stories. It will be out soon on digital bookstores everywhere, although actually some of you are coming into this podcast late, and so chronologically it doesn't even make sense to say that. And so for you, you can probably click on the bookstores right now, Amazons and Barnes and & Nobles and Kobos and Apples, and uh, you'll be able to download it or hopefully buy a physical copy. We'll see how it goes. Also, um, I'm doing an Audible copy, and I've been auditioning narrators right now because I'm going to read the story today. I thought about reading it myself, but, you know, some of these professional narrators are amazing, and it's not like I don't have other things I could be doing. So I think uh, the fictional stuff I'm going to probably hire out Later this year, when I come out with a new nonfiction book called The Reconstructionists, I may read that myself. I don't know. We'll see what the publishing company wants to do. But meanwhile, I have plenty of other things to do, uh, so that's why I'm hiring it out for the book. But I'll probably just read it for you today. (laughs) I hope that doesn't detract from uh, whatever 
I started to say the, uh, the coolness of the story. But then again, you may not like the story anyhow. I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm not going to say anything else about it because this one has a bit of commentary at the end. So I guess right now I would just invite you to um, relax and be present in this moment and to kind of tune some other things out to the best of your ability and just um, see where the spirit leads. Um, you know, well, hopefully it's the right spirit. Sometimes you got to discern where the spirit is leading. Other times you got to discern whether it's even the right spirit. So good luck with that. <laughs> All right. This is called Hovering. Joseph gripped the rope tightly as he led the donkey down a rocky ravine. He felt the fibers digging into his hands, the heat from the friction. He glanced up at his young wife, shifting and swaying with the animal. She was looking down, carefully watching hooves navigate dusty stone and gravel. The three of them, Joseph, Mary, and Donkey, descended without speaking, the only noise, the shuffling of rock, the scraping of hoof, the occasional grunt of Joseph guiding and pulling the animal. Mary dipped and swayed with one last kick of the donkey's leg up and over the edge. The mountains rippled off to the north, as if a giant muscular arm had swept the land in front of them, leaving it smooth and endless. The trail snaked down a gentle slope for a bit, then, under the rush of clouds, made a straight run out to the edge of all they could see. Mary began speaking again, picking up where she had left off, talking about empires and emperors. What's old Octavian calling himself again? Mary asked. She squinted off into the horizon, shaking her head, thinking about the pain of being forced to take another census. I think he's going by Caesar Augustus now, Joseph replied. Caesar Augustus? Like his uncle Julius? Do you imagine every dictator coming out of Rome now will call themselves Caesar? Joseph laughed. Probably. Mary shook her head. I don't like it, she said. His name change or what he's forcing us to do? I don't like either one, she quickly answered. Although I don't blame him, Octavian is an unfortunate and moronic name. If that were my name, I'd change it too. Sounds like something you'd name, oh, I don't know, a donkey or something. She patted the donkey's neck and said, In fact, that's what I'm going to start calling our donkey here, Octavian the Ass. Joseph laughed again. I like it, he said. But if we cross paths with the authorities in Bethlehem, maybe it'd be best for you not to mention the donkey's name? Yes, Mary continued. Onward, Octavian the ass. Drag the poor and the tired, the weak and the pregnant across the desert to Bethlehem. A raven landed close by, but Mary didn't notice. She was busy raising her voice and fist to the sky. Yes, O mighty ass, you must count us and get our tax money to figure out your labor force, to build your worthless armies. The raven ducked its head and immediately flew away. Joseph watched the bird and thought, I don't blame you, bird. He draped the rope over the neck of the donkey, confident that he didn't need to guide the animal as much while on level ground. He patted the animal's neck, feeling the coarse hair between his fingers. Good old Octavian, he said. 
A few minutes later, Joseph heard a small but distinct ping. He turned to locate the sound and immediately squinted as light reflected off a small piece of metal in the air. He realized Mary had pulled a drachma out of the leather pouch tied around the donkey's neck. She was flipping the coin in the air. Hey, Joseph laughed. Be careful with that. She caught it, scrunched her nose, and looked at the image of Caesar Augustus. She handed it to Joseph and asked, What's it say again? He wiped the coin with the sleeve of his tunic and then read the inscription. He rolled his eyes and said, Prince of Peace and Lord of Lords. It was her turn to roll her eyes. Prince of Peace, she mumbled. Imagine calling yourself Prince of Peace after you've slaughtered half of the known world, including our little Jewish world. My uncle and your father. Her voice trailed off. Joseph grimaced at the thought of the men she mentioned, of the arrogance of Rome of being forced to live in occupied territory. You think any of these Caesars will ever learn, Joseph? Hebrew lives matter. Joseph sighed. He squinted out to the deepest, thinnest line of blue out on the horizon. When would God help them? He reached his arm up, found the pouch, and carefully reinserted the coin. He felt around at the bottom of the bag to confirm that the money was safe. He kept his hand close to Mary as he looked up at her. Mary was unlike anyone he had ever known. There were obvious things, the beauty of her face, the humor in her personality, features of which he was certain. And then there were the less obvious things, things he couldn't quite name. The way she carried herself, even on backs of donkeys, her eyes, fiery and cobalt, the depths of which seemed to throb against the blue of the desert sky behind her as she returned his gaze. Looking up at her, squinting through one eye, attempting to take her in, he said, You're like royalty, Mary. It was her turn to laugh. What? she asked. Joseph nodded his head and then looked forward, patting the donkey's neck as he walked. I was around Herod's family once, you know. Herod the Great, she scoffed. Should be Herod the Terrorist. Joseph smiled and raised his arms. I know, I know, let me finish. A few years ago, I was in Jerusalem when his entourage came through. People, chariots, money, and the way the ladies, well, the way all of them carried themselves. They acted like they were worth something, but it was just a show. Joseph, still looking and walking forward, pointed up at Mary. But you, you know you're worth something. The smallest of smiles appeared at the corners of Mary's pursed lips as she looked at the top of Joseph's head. She squeezed the finger he still had stretched out toward her. She took a deep breath and looked out over the desert. I don't know if I'm royalty, but I am blessed. What God is doing for us will never be forgotten. His mercy flows like those sand dunes over there, in wave after wave on those who are in awe before him. He shows his strength and scatters the bluffing Octavians of this world. Just wait, Joseph, you'll see. This was not the first time Joseph had heard Mary talk like this, but unlike the first time, he was now considering believing her. Maybe God really was doing something inside of her. Maybe she really was royalty. The conversation, like the landscape around them, grew sparse. Mary pulled her shawl over her head to keep her black hair from absorbing all the afternoon heat. For a long time, the only sound was the occasional snort or tail swishing of Octavian. 
That evening, they sat by the fire as it popped and cracked. The smoke was tentative, curling in and around sticks and logs, gaining courage and then winding upward. Mary followed the smoke trail with her eyes until it became lost within a sheet of sequin stars, itself lost within an ocean of black. Joseph poked at the fire with a stick. Then he leaned back against the donkey and said, Mary, tell me again what the angel said to you. He watched her looking up into the sky. Her countenance reflected shades of oranges and yellows, heat and light. She looked at Joseph for a moment, then back up, as if seeing the angel above her at that very moment. She repeated what the messenger had spoken in short, soft sentences. A Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Your offspring will be called Holy, a Son of God. Joseph tried to find a Holy Spirit in the night skies. He thought about God's presence hovering over Mary. Hey, he said, do you remember what Torah says about creation? Which part? She moved her leg as a log cracked open by her foot. Right at the beginning, he leaned over to flick a fiery ember back into the fire. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Joseph felt a rise in Mary's energy. It was more than just the reflection of fire or stars. There was something alive in her eyes. She smiled and nodded her head. She was staring up at the stars again and said, Yes, the Spirit of God hovered. Joseph sat up straighter. Do you think, he began to ask, and then quieter as he began to be overwhelmed by the thought. Yes, I do think. I think the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep, creating something out of the chaos of all that was. It's more than, well, she looked into the flames, lapping up into the air. It's more than he created out of nothing. He hovered over what was already there. It was the wildness of the face of the deep. He ordered it. He energized it. Without God, it would have just been chaos, Joseph chimed in. Yes, lost and without form, but God made something new. He took what was there and made something new. She placed both hands over her enlarged belly and finished the thought. Joseph, I think he's doing something new again. And for the first time since Mary's outlandish announcement, Joseph thought about hope. He felt warmth. It wasn't the fire. This warmth was spreading from the inside out. He hesitated for a moment, which kept the heat at bay. He held it there as he recalled what she was like when she had told him first about the news of her pregnancy. On her knees, fists coiled, pounding the tops of her legs, tears running down her cheeks, begging Joseph to believe that she really had been visited by an angel. He remembered the bitterness he had felt that night her tears, his anger. He toyed with recapturing that emotion, that feeling that had defined him most of the previous year. He thought about returning to anger to control the vulnerable hope growing within. But the moment he began to push hope down and return to the pain, his thinking changed. Why? Why would I return to that? Why would I choose to be bitter? Why do I imagine that life is better if I'm in control? 
What does it even mean to be in control? No, that's not who I'm going to be. Mary's words, like the smoke curling and dancing around the fire, were curling and dancing around Joseph. Joseph, I think he's doing something new again. He stood in the threshold of hope and control and then chose hope. The sense of warmth welled up within, then seemed to lift out and into the heavens. Mary shifted up on her knees and faced him. He turned his body to look squarely into her face. He whispered, God's hovering over us as he hovered over the foundation of the world, isn't he? Her cheekbones lifted, her eyes an opening aperture, a witness to the energy he felt. She slowly nodded. Yes, she said quietly, reverently, her countenance so strong, her spirit so fierce. And the sky flashed with a testimony of a shooting star, and embers, like tiny emissaries, drifted away with invitations. And the creosote wood burned the fragrance of something new. It was so real that Joseph actually looked up above him to see if the Spirit of God was hovering over them at that very moment. Mary laughed, watching him peer into the heavens as she snatched a tear from her eye. They both lay back against Octavian. Mary eventually dozed off inside the crook of his arms, but Joseph, he didn't sleep well that evening. He feared the extraordinary and holy moment would eventually dissipate just as the fire at their feet was dissipating. So throughout the night, he woke himself to search for the Spirit of God hovering above them, all around them. Author's Note We don't know the end of our story any more than Joseph and Mary knew the end of their story. Life is a risk. Risk cannot be corralled, coerced, or controlled. The only thing we can expect is the unexpected. But if God hovered over and lived within the chaos 13.8 billion years ago and made something new, and if he hovered over and lived within the chaos of Mary's life and made something new, he can hover over and live within the uncertainty of politics, the wildness of ecological crisis, the insecurity of racism, the unpredictability of pandemics, and he can hover over and within you. You are being invited right now In this moment, and in this moment, and now in this moment, to risk, to hope, to love. It's an invitation that's been going on for all eternity. It's our origin, and it's our end, though using the word end within the context of an ever-changing dynamic spirit of love seems to be pointless. Because all endings are really beginnings. So when the sermon this Sunday deals with eschatology, you know, the end times, just remember that the Greek word eschaton is translated not only as end, but also edge. Don't find the preacher in the lobby afterward and make a big deal out of all of it. Just find him and give him a hug. Hold him long enough that it starts to feel weird. Pray over him, with him, around him. Breathe. Be patient. Be entangled. Wait about five years. No, seven. Then tell them about the edge. The Spirit hovers along the edges of all we are. If you listen out in the desert under a panoply of stars or in the stillness of your own heart, 
You can hear the movement of air, the deepest whoosh of wings oscillating over all the uncertainty. You are being invited to live at the edge, to let go of fear, to stop trying to control. You are being invited into liberation from anxiety. If we recognize the spirit is hovering over us, willing to partner with us in the very contractions of our chaos, something miraculous and new could be birthed in our world. And our world desperately needs it. Don't give up.